I'm Derek Thompson, the host of the podcast Plain English. We tackle technology, politics, culture, history, everything that's happening in the world and why it matters. New episodes of Plain English drop every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to part two of the Press Boxes Summer Vacation podcast series. Ryan Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producers Erica Cervantes and Eduardo Ocampo. It's been a few months since the last installment of our One Perfect Story series. You know what we do. We pick a great piece of journalism. We bring the writer on the pod, and we talk both about how the story was written, and just as interestingly to me, how it reflects a moment in that writer's life and a moment in journalistic time. Today's guest is Chris Jones. Jones wrote a story called The Things That Carried Him, the true story of a soldier's last trip home, which ran in Esquire magazine 15 years ago. Now, if you haven't read The Things That Carried Him, or even if you have, the wise thing to do here is hit pause, read the piece on Esquire.com, and then meet me back here. If you're like me, You'll read a mini section of the story, and then you'll find yourself getting up from your desk and maybe walking around outside to let the story settle a bit before pushing on to the next section. The Things That Carried Him is about Sergeant Joe Montgomery, the 3,431st member of the U.S. military who was killed during the Iraq War, a war that started 20 years ago this spring. The story traces the journey of Montgomery's body from a street in Baghdad to a cemetery in Scottsburg, Indiana, Jones's story is not just sad. There are a lot of sad stories in the world. It's a story about process and about duty. It's a story that helps us begin to understand what a war does to a country and how grief spreads beyond a soldier's family and friends and platoon mates. It's a wonderful piece of writing that appeared in an issue of Esquire that had Jessica Simpson on the cover. One of the best parts of my job is getting to hear how a story like this came together. Here's Chris Jones on the things that carried him. All right, Chris, where'd you get the idea to write the things that carried him? Well, at the time I was a staff writer at Esquire and I felt like one of my job was one of my jobs was to constantly look for ideas. So I was just a, I don't even know how to describe it. I would just constantly be on the lookout for something. Um, and in this case, and I, I, I wish I could find the original story. I had read a story 
that I'm 99% sure was on CNN.com about life at a forward operating base in Iraq. And as part of the story, a soldier was killed and he was returned to the base on the hood of a Humvee. And I knew about, you know, how those soldiers came home and were buried at home. And I just asked myself, how does that soldier get from the hood of that Humvee in Baghdad to his burial site in the U.S.? And and it was just a question. It was just a, I didn't know how it worked. It was just a process question. And I really like a process story, how things happen. Um, and that was the original kernel of it, was just me reading that story and thinking, oh, what happens next? And and the things that carried them is, is, is what happens next. How do you take that story to your editors? Well, Esquire was actually a really hard place to pitch. It was, um, even though I was a staffer, you know, I probably got rejected 20 times out of 21, something like that. I think my batting average on ideas was 0.05 or something. Like it was, I was constantly just flooding the zone with ideas and and would often be rejected with significant authority. But in this case, it was, um, I was in the office. I happened to be in the office with my big boss, who was David Granger, who was our editor in chief. And then my direct editor, Peter Griffin, who was also the deputy editor at the magazine. And I didn't go to the office very often. But I happened to be in the office and we were talking about something else that I can't remember. And David said, oh, do you have any more ideas kicking around? And that one just sort of was near the surface for some reason. And I said, well, I was thinking about how a soldier gets back from Iraq, like after he or she is killed, like how they bring them home. And... Granger and Peter had worked together forever, I think all the way back to inside sports or somewhere like that. And um, they just kind of looked at each other and Granger said, okay. And at Esquire, that's not how pitching worked. Like it was usually a really elaborate process. And so it was, it was so, um, I don't know what the word is, so like ephemeral feeling that the next day when I got home, I emailed Peter and I said, are we doing this? Like I, I, I'm sort of unclear if I'm, I've been given the go-ahead for this because I think this is a big story. And I, he sent one of the great emails a writer can get from an editor, which was just, yeah, go, make it great. See when you get back. And that's all it was. It was just, it was the easiest pitch of my career, probably. It was just a very quick, just the door just opened. And when you say you would get rejected, is that because there are only so many slots in a monthly magazine or your ideas would be stuff they just didn't want? <laughs> I mean, it's probably a combination. I mean, I mean, I definitely had some esoteric ideas. Uh, and occasionally they would say yes. I mean, I got big features on spending a week with Carrot Top in the magazine. And Tom Juno thinks I have like naked pictures of Granger somewhere because I did a story about the $100 bill, like how, like why the $100 bill looks the way it looks, which is very much a story I would like and very much a story that Tom thought was ridiculous. Um, so I can't <laughs> complain about my approval rating. It was just... Um, it was just a constant, I just, I just felt like it was part of my gig was just to deliver ideas. It's the hardest part, Brian. Like it's the hardest, especially for magazines. This is going to sound really ancient, but you know, the hard thing about pitching for magazines is you need stories that sort of fall through the cracks because it takes a long time to get it done. It took a long time for a story to come out. And so if you, you couldn't say like, uh, oh, I, I'm going to cover the world series. Like, that's not something that we would do. You're always looking for ideas that will stand up over time, that seem essential, 
that will stand up for 6,000 words and that no one else is going to do in the meantime more quickly. It was really hard to find that good idea. And that, so that sort of attrition process of ideas was just part of the deal. We can look back now and say, this was the top of the ninth inning for the age of magazines. 100%. How do you describe what it was like to write for Esquire during that period? I knew it was glorious. Like I knew how lucky I was. I never, I started in newspapers um, and magazines were always where I wanted to go because I always felt like I was writing imperfect stories at the paper, just too quick, you know, hasty. Everything was hasty. And um, even something like that original story that I read that was the Colonel, the forward operating base story on CNN, CNN was the kind of story I would have written. It was like, just the tip of the iceberg and magazines gave you the chance to really dig into something. And Esquire in particular, I think was one of a handful of magazines where they would really invest in a story. And if the machine of Esquire was behind you, which honestly was principally Granger and Peter, you were golden. You could just go to work. Uh, and you know, I, before you and I spoke today, I was thinking about this story and, and the process of it. And so it would be a really hard story to do today. It just, the economics of it don't really make sense. I don't know that they made sense when we did it. Like, you know, I was trying to break it down. This story costs, if you count, you know, my salary, because I worked on this and only this for eight months. If you count my salary, the other people who worked on this story, the photos, the travel, I mean, it's probably between a hundred and $200,000 to have written this story, I think. And Wow. It just doesn't, I mean, just my salary, you know, I was thinking, not this will sound, but I was probably making 150 around that time. And I know there's some kid in journalism school who's just falling on the floor thinking you can make 150 grand writing six magazine stories a year. Like it's just, it sounds ridiculous as it comes out of my mouth, but, but so there's eight months, a hundred grand for me probably. And then everything else that went into it and just who's doing that now. It's just not many places would, invest in that kind of story never mind the space like that story is almost seventeen thousand words like it's just it's almost a product of a, a different time the top of the ninth inning for sure um it was the best that's a really long answer to your question i loved every minute of working at esquire it was great i saw you say in an interview you were 35 years old when you were working on this story and felt that you were ready to write something like it in what sense were you ready i can't believe i was 35 that's causing me, that's causing me a bit of a moment. Um, we'll have a little mortality moment here. <laughs> it doesn't seem like very long ago is, is what's funny about it. It seems like yesterday. I, was, I, I remember everything about working on that story. Um, 35 for me, I had this theory that writers peaked at 36 um, because you were deep enough into your career. And I mean journalism. You were deep enough into your career that you knew what you were doing. You had confidence, which is so important to a story like this one. You can feel when a writer has it in his or her hands. Um, you're, you're, um, you're seasoned, but you're still hungry. You're still fresh enough that you're willing to throw yourself into a story. I had young kids. I was married with young kids at the time, and, and I was just entering that life, but I still had those vestiges of like a young man who would give everything for his work. Um, so it's sort of a sweet spot, I think for me, where I knew what I was doing. I was confident in my abilities. 
I still would spend eight months getting after a story like this one. And I, you know, I was sitting here now. I don't know that I would throw myself into a story the way I did back then. I have teenagers. I have, I have teenagers now, Brian. Like my life is over. So it's like, you know. <laughs> so you found this clipping about Sergeant Joe Montgomery. Then what do you do? Well, Joe, so Joey was the, Joey was the soldier on, in the story. Um, I didn't, I don't think I knew that. I think I've been trying to come up with, I, there were, I remember going through a process of looking at various soldiers and I don't want to sound ghoulish about it, but just looking for the person that fit. Um, and you know, there's even in the story, there's a brief mention of a soldier who was one of the other possibilities, Tuba, who was on the plane with Joey. Uh, his nickname was Tuba. He lived in Minnesota, I want to say. Um, but I kept coming back to Joey. And I I don't have a good explanation for that. I liked, I remember probably liking that he was um from a small town in middle America. Um, but there was something about him. It just drew me to him. And I, it's in, like a fairly inexplicable instinct that just, I was like, Joey is the, Joey's the person. And so, you know, an underrated part of the process for a story like this is, is, is those first days where you're trying to make it happen, where you're trying to make a story go. And I decided, and Esquire agreed that we wouldn't do the story unless the family involved was fully behind it. And so the very first call I made was to Gail, was to Joey's mom. And there is nothing that can prepare you, you know, for a conversation like that. It's just, it's just, um, and actually I remember very specifically having that talk with Gail. I was walking around in my house. Um, I thought I had been given her home number and my plan was to call her while she was at work, leave a message, and then she could call me back if she wanted. I thought that was the most delicate way to do it, but I'd been given her work number and she answered. You just start, hi, I'm Chris. I'm from Esquire magazine. We'd like to do a story about how a soldier's body is returned from Iraq, and we'd like that soldier to be Joey. And she just immediately started sobbing. and. um you know, the hard truth of that call is I blew up her day, um, blew up her life in some ways. And an hour and a half later, I want to say, she agreed that that um, that it could be Joey. And, and her only proviso was that I had to talk to everybody else uh, first, and then she would be last. She did, not want to, she did not want to talk to me and then have the story fall apart. She didn't want to talk to me for no reason. Um, and at that stage, I had no idea what the process was. I had no idea who would be involved. I, I didn't know the scope of things. Um, so I agreed to that. I said, okay, I'll, I'll talk to everybody else in the chain and you will be the last link. And, and that's how it worked out. I, she was the, the, my visit to, um, Scottsburg was the end of the reporting trip. As a reporter, how do you ask people about the death of a loved one? I mean, it's, uh, it, you try to be as careful and delicate as you can. Um, at the same time, you need information. Um, you know, a story like this only works if you get the details that really give it some heft, give it some weight. 
And um, that requires asking hard questions sometimes. And it's just part of the deal. It's And it's an uncomfortable part of the deal. Like when I was a younger reporter, that's another reason 35, 36 was probably a good time for me to do this. I basically quit my newspaper job because I was asked to hold call victims' families from September 11th. I was at the paper on September 11th. And I just didn't want to do it. I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't, no part of me wants to do that. And um, an editor at the time who said, what you don't understand is that people want to talk to you. They want someone who will listen and they want to tell you about the person they loved and how great they were. They, they want that outlet. And I, I was in, in my, I was thinking about it from my perspective. And I was like, the last thing I would want to do is talk to somebody like me. I don't want that. Um, but in the case of Gail, in the case of Joey's friends and family, in the case of everyone who helped bring him home, you know, those editors' words held true. They did want to talk. They wanted to share the story. And I, after that initial phone call with Gail, I never felt particularly uncomfortable with the process. I always felt like, like I was doing the right thing. I was the right person to do the story. I was going to do the story as well as I could. And luckily, you just sort of throw yourself at the feet of people, many of whom are in mourning, and say, I want to do this right. Will you talk to me about your son, your brother, your husband, your friend? And most of them said yes. And, and then you just do the work. Even if you feel like you're the right person to do it, do you find yourself consumed by sadness when you're writing a story like this? I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, and this is a debate in journalism where, especially at that time, there was sort of a big sort of argument about objectivity and subjectivity in journalism and what it takes to be a good reporter. And I never had the ability to put up walls between me and subjects. I just, I just, I'm just not built that way. Um, I thought it was an unreasonable thing to ask of people like you're being asked to be a sociopath in some weird way. Um, you know, this is where Janet Malcolm enters the conversation and the journalist and the murderer. And I always, frankly, I loathe that essay. Um, I, I feel like you can be a good caring person and also be a journalist. And I just, I got involved. I, I felt, you know, I, I talked to 101 people for that story. I would guess some large percentage, 75 of them cried during our interviews, which meant I also cried during many of them. Um, I remember talking to Aunt Vicky in a Cracker Barrel and just both of us weeping at the table and people asking if we're all right. And it's just, you just, I just wasn't the kind of person to just say, oh, I'm not going to feel this. I felt it. And, and that has a cost to it. You know, it's, um, that story, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of that story. It's the most important thing I've done. It's the best thing I've done. It was also really difficult. It was just a, it was, there was a, there was a trade I made. Um, and I would make it again, but, but it was tough. It was tough. And, and, and I gotta say, Brian, like 0.0001% as tough as anyone else's experience of that story. Like the people who are directly involved, but you definitely get um, 
you're almost like a sin eater, I think, where you just you sort of take it in each time. And by the time I got to the end of that story, I was uh, I was pretty worn out. That emotion you're describing, would you call it sharing their grief in some small way? Yeah, I mean, I would just call it being human. I cry when I see people cry. It's just, it's like a, it's just a, it's not a, a conscious decision. It's just, you know, um, I feel sad when people around me feel sad. It just, it just happens. It's just osmosis. And I, I, you know, people have made fun of me. I'm definitely a man of deep feeling and like too deep sometimes. Like I take things to, I'm definitely an emo person in a doughy, middle-aged man's body but i it's just who i am like i just it's like there's no fight in it and so yeah i wouldn't say it was sharing their grief it was just being affected by their grief it was you know with gail i sat at her kitchen table and she made me pot roast and cherry pie and we talked about her son and and um of course i was crying like she was crying like of course i it's like if you and i if you were coming to me with a deep deep sadness and i was asking you about it you feel it i don't know it just for me it wasn't like a conscious part of the process it just it's just how i work and it's how that situation so as you're tracing montgomery's journey from iraq to southern indiana where he was buried how many places did you go to report this um i went to 13 states i was going to iraq i was doing the training you do as a journalist to go and then joey's uh, and i'm going to get the term wrong but his platoon or his um troop was recalled just before i was to go and they they were based in alaska so sort of very weirdly instead of a rock i went to alaska um but so i went to uh, all the interviews were in person um i was going to baghdad to do all those interviews and all the people came back so um so all over America, basically, 13 different states. And I don't like to fly, so I drove to most of them except for Alaska and just did this like pilgrimage of sadness across middle America. It was uh it was an experience. Did you regret not going to Baghdad? Sometimes. Sometimes I think about it. Um again, I had young kids. Um my wife at the time was um really concerned about it. It was one of those very difficult, thorny conversations um i committed to going i was gonna go uh and i think standing on the ground might have given me something that the story is missing but um but i would have been going there literally just stand on the ground it would not there, there was no one there who i there was no one i didn't talk to who i missed because they were in a rock like everyone was back home and so but I do think being there matters. And that's, 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 that's the one sort of thing that still occasionally drifts in the back of my head is, is I should have stood on the ground. How long did your reporting last all told? I worked on the story for eight months. Um, and I, I would say the reporting was probably six months. Um, it was sort of an interesting combination of reporting and, and detective work because, um, Putting the chain together was tricky. I, I again, I went into this story knowing the ending. I knew that that the soldier would be buried in his or her hometown, and there would be the twenty-one gun salute, and someone would play taps, and 
I knew that. And obviously the beginning is Baghdad. But everything in between was a mystery to me. Um, and the, the story start, the, the first place I figured out was Dover, was the mortuary in Dover, Delaware, which for people who haven't read the story or don't know, every single soldier killed overseas goes to the same mortuary in Dover. It's like a, a factory. And, um, and I knew that was sort of the middle. And then from there, I sort of slowly started working my way out to either end. So I had the beginning, I had the ending, I had Dover as a sort of hinge point, and then just putting the links of the chain together, which literally was often me saying, how did Joey come into your, who brought you Joey? Like, how did Joey enter your world? And, and, then, and then tracing it that way. So it was, it was finding the people, and then it was the actual reporting of talking to them. And over this period of months, you're working five days a week on this, seven days a week on this detective work? Oh, seven. I was consumed by the story. I, I was probably putting in 80 hour weeks or something. It was, it was um, pretty nonstop. What do you remember about writing the story? Well, I, I don't write in order. Um, my big fear with this. So the story sort of spiraled out of control. Like when it, when I first pitched it, I was imagining uh, one of our usual features, which was 6,000 words and, and because I didn't know anything about the process, I, I was sort of flying a little blind. And then as I started the reporting, I started realizing, oh, well, there's a lot of steps to this journey. Um, and I, I tend to write as I have material. I like writing fresh. Like I'll often go back to my Hampton Inn at the end of the day and start writing. And so I wrote this out of order. The first piece, I, the first section of the story I wrote was the jones and linton were the two pilots who flew from dover to seymour i wrote that section first and it came out at two thousand words or whatever it was and that was my first thinking oh no like i'm this is going to be problematic um and it i remember feeling good about the writing but i also remember being terrified about the length um and that was a big sort of, I don't know, overarching worry in the back of my head. And I would call Peter. I called Peter after that first section. I said, I don't know if six is going to do this. And he said, how about 10? And I was like, okay, let's do 10. And then I blew past 10. And I was like, oh, I don't know about 10. And he was going, well, what are we talking about here? Uh, and I was like, I don't really know. And he said, well, just write it and we'll figure it out. And so I wrote, I think, 22,000. And... God bless Peter when that landed on his desk. He didn't immediately throw a massive fit and um, ultimately ran it, but we ran it at 17, 16 and a half. As you structured it, the story starts with Montgomery's burial in Indiana and then proceeds backwards in time to his death in Iraq. Why'd you choose to write it that way? That initial pitch meeting. So Peter is like, Peter's a sensei. Peter's one of the great editors in America. And when I pitched the story, and Granger looks at Peter and says, yes, so quickly that I don't know that I'm still doing the story. Peter then says, maybe you should write it backwards. And at the time in the meeting, I was like, I'm a very sort of meat and potatoes writer. I'm not a stylist. Um, I consider myself a good reporter, but normally when I'm writing, I just tell a story. Uh, and I thought backwards, like that seems like pretty elaborate. Um, and then as I was working on the story, it made sense for me for two reasons. One, from a purely 
practical sense where you want people to finish the story, it made the ending a mystery. If you tell it chronologically, you know that the way I knew the ending was the funeral, you know the ending. But if you flip it, you don't know what's coming next. And then from sort of a, I don't know how you wanted to call it, like a spiritual emotional level, the more invested I got in the story, the more it made me feel like in a weird way, and I hope this doesn't sound vainglorious or anything, but for a minute, Joey comes back to life. You see Joey only as a body until the very end of the story when he is leading his men through the grass. And that became important to me just for emotional reasons, I guess is the word. Um, yeah, so so writing it backwards was not my idea. Um, but I think it made sense afterwards. The Washington Post wrote a review of that story and said it was a very strange choice. Um, and, it, and it is, I think, but I... I think it's a choice I would I, I, I would stand by it, actually. So I wouldn't attempt it again. <laughs> it does. It sounds gimmicky. Yeah. In theory. Yeah. But then you read it, and as you say, because we see little hints about the condition of his body. So it also creates this sense of, I don't know if suspense is the right word, but this as a reader, you want to know, so what happened to him? Bring us back to the beginning. That's the, and again, I hope that doesn't sound ghoulish. It's just, you know, the fear of any story is that people will put it down, right? And this, it's not an easy story. This story is not a fun, it's a tough lift for a reader, especially because of its length. And, you know, we did certain things, like each section starts with a different person and it's broken up into, I want to say maybe 13 sections. And there's little threads, there's things that appear and reappear that hopefully help pull people along. Um, but just from a purely practical outlook, we wanted people to read it. And so that, that sort of turn, I think maybe helped. I hope. What did you want your writing to sound like in this story? Peter and I, we agreed very early that it had to be, it could, the piece could have no opinion. It could have nothing like a slant. Um, I still remember Peter said, I want it to be a novel of facts. And so, you know, when we when we edited it, because we were going from 22,000 to 17,000, and 17,000 is still a massive story, but we're cutting a feature out of it. We're cutting 5,000 words out of it. The standard for a sentence was that it had to have a fact in it. And if it didn't have a fact in it, it was gone. And so that story is really just a straight-ahead account of what happened. Um, and that's how I wanted it to read now interestingly we got every possible response to it that it was uh pro-war that it was anti-war that it was uh, made people proud to be american it made people ashamed to be american it how you read it the lens through which you read it changed its tone but it is an objective, this is a, as an objective piece of writing as I think you can do. You know, there's a scene where I described the burial lid, the lid on the, on the casket that Joey was buried in had like scenes from Iraq, including like Saddam's statue falling and painted on the lid. There were enough bodies coming home that companies made coffins specifically for these soldiers. Like, and I just described the lid, but that made people 
nuts. And I'm, I'm like, that's just a fact. That's just what that was. You know, I didn't say it was a good idea. I didn't say it was a bad idea. I'm just telling you what it is. And I was shocked by like the, how visceral people responded to facts like that, which were just facts. That's just a detail. And that's all that story is. It's a collection of details. For younger people listening to this, May 2008, the end of the Bush administration and a presidential election in the United States is being run on the Iraq war, more or less, especially from one side. So the idea of trying to write a story that is, as you say, objective, that doesn't have opinion in that moment in time is itself a big, big choice because everybody in that moment has an opinion on the Iraq war, pro or con. A hundred percent. Did you or Griffin give the story its title? I can tell you, Brian, I did not give it its title. Um, I do title every story I write just as a, a wayfinder or like a reminder of what I want the story to be. Um, and so if you start, when you're writing that length, you can kind of drift. And for me, it was always, so my title, and I'm going to get the number wrong, but Joy was, I think the three, something like the 3,741st American soldier to die in Iraq. And the way regiments and everything are, you know, 101st and, and so I just called the story the 3,741st. And for me, that was because Joey is one of these stories. Numbers are so abstract. 4,000 people, 10,000, you, you know, it become, but as soon as you put a name and a face and a story to one of them, and then you multiply that, you know, the goal here is that Joey is, this, is the proxy for all of these um, people who went away and didn't come home. Um, at the time, Esquire, it was the... 70th or 75th anniversary year of Esquire. And they were doing lots of sort of callbacks. Um, and the things they carried, which is the great Tim O'Brien piece, ran in Esquire. And so they called it the things that carried him as a echo. I was mortified when I saw the title because that Tim O'Brien piece for me is like one of my, you know, it's one of my monuments that I go to. Uh, and I was terrified that people would think I was comparing myself to Tim in no way. And Peter had to talk me off a serious meltdown. Um, so no, Peter made the Peter made the headline, the title. Usually against any references to other pieces of writing in the title of a magazine story. Because one, it feels like editors winking at each other and sharing a joke that no one in the reading public will is likely to get. And right. two, because it makes the new piece of writing necessarily, as you say seem like an echo of an existing piece of writing but in this case it kind of works doesn't it you'll take it um i still get sort of uncomfortable about it um all these years later it the tim o'brien piece really is and for your re listeners who haven't read it it's one of the great pieces you know you got in touch with me through kevin van valkenberg kevin van valkenberg and i are friends because on the internet uh old form for sports journalists he sent me a DM recommending the Tim O'Brien book. And I was like, anyone who loves this book has to be my friend. And now Kevin is one of my best friends in the world. Like that's how important this piece of writing is to me. So the idea that it was this callback, I mean, even the cover is the cover was also a, um, caused me a lot of stress because it's Jessica Simpson shaving. She's like topless. You can't see anything, but, and she's shaving, which is an echo of a 1960s cover. Yeah. 
people think it's Marilyn Monroe, but it's not. It's like an Italian actress. Um, and I was like, this cannot be the cover. Like Gail cannot get this in her mailbox. But they put this big sort of banner headline around it saying we put this, we put Jessica Simpson on the cover so that you turn to page 137 and read the story. Like it was, uh-huh. it was the most, it was the most blatant bait and switch uh, in the history of magazine journalism possibly. But isn't it the bait and switch of men's magazines and Esquire in the aughts specifically, except now we're just spelling it out. You're going to buy this magazine because there's a beautiful celebrity on the cover. You're going to open it up. You're going to find this piece that you didn't expect. And it's going to move you in perhaps a way you didn't expect. Here, we're just stating that for readers. <laughs> yeah. Donuts and broccoli. We, we call it donuts and broccoli. Every, every issue had to have something sweet. And then inside, you get your vegetables. And that, you know, Esquire, Esquire, I don't know, occasionally would get dismissed as like one of the, this is another callback to that era of magazines, you know, like the lad mags, Maxim and FHM and all those things. Um, and Esquire would sort of be lumped into it. And we, at Esquire, we were always like, it, and that, I mean, this is where Norman Mailer wrote. This is where Hemingway wrote, you know, we're not FHM. We're doing some other stuff here. But, no. But those magazines were certainly putting pressure on Esquire and the newsstand back when we had a newsstand. So you could enormous tell. pressure. You could do a whole story about magazine covers at the time because Granger almost got fired like four issues into his tenureship because he put Mr. Rogers on the cover. Tom <laughs> Junot wrote this amazing Mr. Rogers story that is now like iconic. Uh, and it was the worst selling issue of the magazine, like possibly ever, because I had Mr. Rogers on the cover and David was called to the carpet. So, what are you doing? What are you doing? And and so yeah, so Jessica Simpson on the cover was it's Mr. Rogers' fault, really. Yeah, he's like, I'm never making that mistake again. Never making that mistake again, exactly. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kids' education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire, you're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. 
You mentioned Gail Bond. What did she make of this story? Um, you know, there's the, the story. I, I wish I could put it into words what the story means. You write a story like this and you have hopes for it. You don't embark on a journey like this if you don't have sort of a, a hope for the end of it. And rightly or wrongly, sort of what makes this story special to me is the response of the people who were in it. And you're supposed to do journalism without consideration for the subject. You're supposed to write a true account, which I did. It's a true account. I stand by every single fact in that story. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't care what Gail thought. I didn't, if I didn't care what Aunt Vicky thought, if I didn't care what the soldiers thought. Like, and as you're, as I was working on this story, I mean, I had people, you know, Joey's friends in the army were like, if you, if you fuck this up, we're gonna come after you. Like, they were like, you can't besmirch this memory. And at Dover, you know, one of the, the heads of Dover. Karen Giles gave me this coin, like different branches of the military have these coins. And she gave me this coin and it was like a folded American flag with gloves, you know, two hands holding it. She was like, I want this to be on your laptop when you're writing the story. Like, I want you to remember what you saw here. I don't want you to forget what this is. And so I did, I wrote it with that coin on my computer and I got invested in the idea of what people would think about it. And I was so nervous when it came out and I told Gail, I was like, Gail, I love you. There are things in this story that are going to hurt you. You don't have to read it. You know, Gail didn't know that Joey's, Joey's one of the brutal details of the story that I really hesitated whether to put it in or not was Joey lost his legs. Joey, Joey stepped on an IED and his legs were blown off. Well, Gail didn't know that because in the casket, they put pants that are stuffed with you know, they, they make a facsimile. And so she had no idea. And I was going, Gail, I don't want you to find this out in this story. But she read it and, um, and she just gave me her sort of immediate and complete blessing about it. She just was so gracious about it. And everyone was the soldiers, you know, I, I still hear from people who are in that story. I still keep in touch with Gail. I still keep in touch with some of the soldiers. And it's just, it's gratifying. It's, it, it matters to me. It shouldn't matter, Brian. Like we're taught that that shouldn't matter, but it did matter to me. Um, and so that's a very long answer to your question, but the, 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 the way that story came out was exactly the way I might've hoped it would come out. It was just, it, it, um, it was a very special experience from start to finish. Tom Junot was once quoted saying that David Granger, Esquire's editor, was sparing in his praise. <laughs> what did Granger say after you wrote this story? Granger was very sparing with his praise. I was always terrified of Granger. Um, I still kind of am in a weird way. Uh, he, I, I, I have the email somewhere. I kept it. Uh, he sent an email that was two lines long. So, and he was very proud to have that story in his magazine and thank you for writing it. And it was just one of those, in a way, the, the original email from Peter, when he said, go make it great, 
they were like bookends. Like a story like this requires so much. The story is obviously heartbreaking, but there's something about it that um, shows how good people can be. Everyone in the story is doing good. I think that's one of the reasons it resonated. And they're doing it often with nobody watching. And, and at the root of this story is this faith in each other. It's this idea that you're going to do your job and you're going to do it as well as you possibly can. And I, great sort of magazine writing for me was always a faith-based exercise. It was your editor trusting you. It was you trusting your editor. It was your subjects trusting you. It was you trusting your subjects. It's just, you're all making an agreement that together you're going to make something good. And I think this story for me was as hard as it was. And as I think back on it, you know, I, you know, I'll be sad today thinking about it. But as I think back on it too, I think how every door opened, how everyone was so kind and generous with their time, how everyone loved Joey, even those who didn't know him, they just, they wanted to do right by him. I wanted to do right by him. Esquire wanted to do it right. Everyone just, it was like this tacit, silent agreement just to do good work. And, and, and I feel like completely honored um, to have been part of the process. It was just, not that I was part of the process of bringing Joey home, but in my head, I became part of the process. And, and everyone was so, everyone I met was so good. And it, it was, in a weird way, the most fulfilling story because I just constantly met people who just did beautiful things because it was the right thing to do. You told Neiman Storyboard back in 2015, it's a little bit hard when you know something is the best thing you'll ever do. And I feel that way about this story. You still feel this story is the best thing you ever did? Yeah, it's not. I mean, if what's what makes it especially hard is it's not super close like this is the you know i don't i don't like to think i was a one hit wonder but it it is the story it's the story that gets brought up the most to me you know you reached out after 15 years and that's and that's every writer has this like I shouldn't say every writer. A lot of writers have this idea that writing is this permanent thing and you're making something like you're making your little monuments and a hundred years from now, someone might pull them off the shelf and read them, which is a weird thing to care about because you will be gone and it doesn't really matter. Um, but I'm not going to lie and say that when your email dropped into my inbox, I didn't, I wasn't a little bit flattered and a little bit pleased that people are still talking about the story. Um, even if it's like just this tiny subset of magazine nerds, like it's, it's, um, yeah, it's the best thing I ever did. And it's the problem is I don't see the opportunity where that kind of thing happens again for me. It was just this moment. Can I tell you a little story? So, so this story seemed impossible at the time because there was a ban on photography at the at Dover. Very publicly, there was a ban of the you couldn't photograph the transfer cases, the, the flag draped transfer cases they arrived in Dover. 
so people didn't even attempt this story because, but there wasn't a ban on writing about it. And so when I called Dover to ask to do the story, they said, well, you need Pentagon approval. I got that immediately. I called the pen, like, I called the Pentagon. I called Lieutenant Colonel Melnick. I still remember that guy's name. Explained what I was doing. He's like, great. I went, okay, so how do I go about getting Pentagon approval? He's like, you have it. I'll call Dover now. Like that door opened. But then there was something almost, and I'm not religious, but there was something like vaguely mystical the whole way the story sort of unfolded. Like, and the thing I always go back to is Chaplain Sparks, who's the chaplain who um, says a prayer over the transfer cases in the plane. He boards the plane when it lands at Dover. He's the first person on the plane. There's one transfer case. There's 40 transfer cases. He says a new prayer every plane load. And when I was talking to him, if I'm remembering right, he done something like 700. And I said, you know, you ask questions knowing you're, people aren't going to have the answer. But I said, do you happen to know the prayer that you said over Joey's plane load? And he said, no, of course not. I mean, I wrote different ones for every... Two hours later, I'm talking to someone else at the mortuary. Chaplain Sparks walks into the room. He is white as a ghost. And he's holding a piece of paper and his hands are sort of trembling. And he says he had gone back to his office, which was like piles of piles. You know, it's the office from the usual suspects, you know, just chaos. He knocked over some pile of paper and this one piece of paper sort of flutters to the floor. And it's the passenger manifest with Joey's name on it. And on the back is the prayer that he said, over that plane load. And for him, that was God reaching out. For me, I don't know what it was, but it was like permission. It was that was early days in the story. And it was it was like something or someone saying, You are supposed this is okay. You're supposed to do this story. And it's supposed to be Joey. And it's this is how this is it's gonna work out. And it was this my first reporting trip for the story. And it was just this moment of, and there were so many things that happened over the course of that story that were just doors opened or people just happened to find the thing or someone said, Oh, you should talk to so-and-so. And that person was standing there. Sergeant Slat, who was on the helicopter that took Joey from the forward operating base, to the Baghdad airport. I was in Alaska in this massive military base going, I need to find the guy. And like, I'm telling another person in the cafeteria, I need to find the guy who was on the chopper. And he's standing right next to me. He goes, I was the guy on the chopper. Like that stuff happened over and over again. And again, I'm not making myself part of this process, but it felt like it was okay to do this story. And, and, and I was supposed to do the story and we were supposed to do the story and, and everything was going to work. And it did. Everything worked. It was one of those stories that I, I feel so grateful for because everything just kind of happened. Um, it's like I wasn't even really part of it. It was like, I'm just the, I'm just the person who got lucky enough to be the guy. Funny as writers, we're always looking for, as you say, signs that we are, we should have the permission to do this, that we're supposed to be doing this. Do you have so many, there's so many signs that you're not, you know, an unreturned phone call an unreturned email, an editor who looks like you're like, eh, I don't know, maybe. And then you just start poking around. Even if you're doing your job, making calls, doing research, doing all those kinds of things, you just look for that one or two moments. <laughs> whether we ascribe them to religion or not to just go i'm supposed to be doing this, this you is- have i'm glad so you have this too sure sometimes i think i'm a maniac well i am a maniac but like i'm this story should have been the hardest in terms of getting it done this story should have been brutal and it was one of the easiest 
everything just unfolding from the pitch to the response. It was just, and it made it feel okay. Cause you definitely, like you asked earlier about the weight of asking people these questions and stuff, it, it exists. I think journalists are often sort of portrayed like Rita Skeeter and Harry Potter, where we're all just elbowing our way into scrums and being vicious. And most writers are careful, caring people. Like that's why they write They're And they're often introverts. Um, that's also why they write and love books. And they, it's just, I'm, I'm often at odds with my personality <laughs> trying to do this stuff. And, and, and just, it's relieving to hear that you are, you also look for the, because sometimes I think it sounds, ridiculous of course there's no divine intervention in this stuff but but sometimes you take um coincidences for signs and it gets you through to the other end of it you also told neiman that immediately after this meaning this piece i was in a very deep depression which you later wrote about in esquire was that period of depression connected at all to the writing and reporting of this story um i've asked myself this question a lot I think so, but I'm not positive. Um, I, I, you know, I can talk for a long time about this um, and shouldn't, but it's, um, that was my first, I'd been a very even keeled person to the point where my friends made fun of me for how, I was always like a seven, just everything's fine. Never got up, never got down. Um, and then immediately after this story, and there were other things going, you know, I was a father of young children and um, there's sort of fractures in my marriage and there was, you know, there was other stuff going on in my life, but it was, and I, and I think my depression was also like chemical or electrical or whatever depression is. Like, I think it just happened, but, and it was less being surrounded by the sadness of it and more, once it was finished, I was a little lost. And that idea that I'd done this thing that I would never be able to replicate. Um, I mean, I knew it in the moment. Like it, it's, it's, you know, it's weird, like a basketball player walking off the court after a hundred point game or whatever. And you go, well, that can't happen. Like that, what do you do? I always think that the people who went to the moon, like, well, what now buzz? Like, what's that conversation <laughs> with yourself? Like, it's like a, so so for me, it was, it was this combination of things. And it was also this sort of aimlessness afterwards, you know, magazine writing. And one of the things I loved about the job was the uncertainty of it. I was on one year contracts. I would get a call out of the blue saying, now you're going to go write about Colin Farrell or whatever. And I would be on a plane. And I love that. But for eight months, I was certain for eight months, I knew exactly what I was doing. And it was like a mission. I was fully committed and then it was done. And then I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. So the depression I think was, it was not caused by the story. And I, I say this every time I talk about this stuff, I don't want young writers thinking it's part of the deal. You don't have to wear black and be sad to be a good writer. You can be really joyous and be a good writer. Um, but in that instance, the confluence of factors, I think, and one of the factors was less the sadness of the story and more having finished the story and not knowing what came next. A couple quick ones before you go. What do you still want to write? There's no quick ones for me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the questions will be short in any case. <laughs> I hope your editor just like snip, snip, snip. Um, 
What do I still want to write? Um, I'm about to write a book that I'm excited to write about that I wish I had a better elevator pitch for, but I'm writing a story about heartbreak and its remedies through the lens of soccer. And my soccer is one of my great obsessions. Um, I play, I coach, I ref. I'm a fanatical follower of Burnley FC who just got promoted to uh, the Premier League. Um, and it's about the story is about my boy and it's about mental health. And it's about my, my younger son is also, he's inherited fully the soccer gene. And, um, and I'm excited about that book. I think it's, um, I think it's my best chance to write something good. Um, books now seem like the best chance to do that for me. Uh, and I'm working, I still do journalism. I'm working on a story for the Atlantic that I'm excited about. Um, and now I'd like to write a really good movie. I'm 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 doing screenwriting now. I was lucky enough that one of my last Esquire stories became a TV show that I got to work on, and so I got my screenwriting card. And um, I'd be lying if I didn't if I said I didn't care about one day looking at a movie screen and seeing something I wrote on it. But unfortunately, my my I'm like um, you know when when the Roadrunner or Wiley e. Coyote are running and the cliff is sort of collapsing. And, you know, I ran from newspapers to magazines, <laughs> I ran to TV, uh, you know, we're on strike right now and Netflix, you know, who knows what's happening in that industry. And it's like, I don't know. I got, I need like 20 more years of work. I just got to keep running until I look down, I guess. It brings me to my next question, which is if someone wanted to write a story like the things that carried him now, where would they write it? I mean, there's a handful of magazines that might do it. The Atlantic, the New Yorker maybe the new york times magazine um it's just whether they would do you know you could do a whole i know you are big on the by the way i'm super uh flattered that you like i read all your stuff and listen to all your you're like the beacon of the industry and so when I, i'm like I, I feel like i finally made it um uh you know you could do a whole thing about the economics of stories like this I don't know how you do it. It doesn't make sense because the staff writer, like the death of the staff writer, like this only works for staff writers. Like if you're a freelancer, you know, you're getting $2 a word and no one's running 17,000 words. I don't say they're running 15,000 words, 30,000 bucks. You can't work for eight months on that. It doesn't make economic sense. And so when you say who writes this or where this gets published, that's one question, but the other question is the economics of it. And I don't know how you make it make sense. If it ever made sense, maybe it didn't make sense, but, but I know when Esquire was selling an ad page for 75 grand, you could justify spending quite a lot of money on the page next to it. It's just, it, 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 yeah, the model doesn't exist now to do this story. I hope it emerges again, but I, it's, it's hard for me to see what that is. Like you said earlier, it barely made sense in 2007. And I don't think it did make sense. No, which is one of the reasons I feel so lucky to have written it. It's just nuts. If, if, if you really break it down, and thankfully, I think Granger and Peter made the decision so quickly, they didn't stop to think about it. Uh, and I also don't think they knew when, when Peter was like, go, I don't think they knew that eight months later, I was going to return with 22,000 words. Like I, it was sort of, it just got out of hand. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it ever made sense. I, I don't think they really thought about it beyond... That's something we want to see in our magazine. Last one. The Esquire we're talking about ends in 2016 when David Granger gets fired and you and most of the other writers leave with him. 
how does a magazine that doesn't exist in anything like its previous form sit in your mind now? Bittersweet, I would say, is when I think about Esquire. It's like, you know, I feel very lucky to have been part of it when I was. There are people who only got a couple years. You know, there are people who graduated. I've talked to classes of magazine students who graduated in 2012. And I remember one of them showing up at Esquire and he got a couple of years in. Um, I got 14. I have colleagues who got 40 who retired in 2016. He got right to the end and finished. Scott Rabb, I think about, he's like, well, I'm out now, I'm done. Um, so I'm grateful for what I got. Occasionally I think, oh man, I wish that still existed. Not just for me, but for other people who want to do that kind of work. Um, I still love a great magazine story. I think it's a very particular kind of journalism and storytelling that is, when done well, is can be perfect. It can be like this really beautiful thing. Um, I'm sad that that Esquire doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was this fantastic, hopeful place to work. It was. It felt like a family. It felt. Um, We'd go out, you know, the writers would go out for steak dinner and it would just be this magical, just a bunch of geeks talking about writing and eating meat. It was just, it was such a happy, <laughs> special time. It was just, I loved it. I loved it. Like when I think about Esquire, I think about some of those dinners and I go, man, how lucky I was to sit at that chair for a little bit. I just wish other people had the opportunity. There, there are 25 year olds out there who are incredible magazine writers. They would be, George Plimpton's and the Susan Orleans of now, if they had the shot. And it's, I'm just sad that those stories, at least for the time being, seem like a tough sell. I hope someone figures out a way to make them make sense again. Perfect eulogy for the men's magazine at the early odds. Talking, writing, and eating meat. We ate a lot of steak. It was very bro -y. That was the other, the, 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 the sort of like the, the asterisk to all of this is, you know, it was of a time and you look back on some of it and you go, no, sexiest woman alive. That's something that probably shouldn't exist anymore. I'm pretty glad that's not part of the lexicon. Um, yeah, there was definitely a bro element to it that was regrettable, but, um, but mostly it was people who just wanted to write good stuff and it, and, and occasionally we got to write good stuff. You can read Chris Jones's story, the things that carried him on Esquire.com, which still exists. Chris, thanks for coming on the press box. Thank you. <laughs> That's the Press Box. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes and Eduardo Ocampo. Okay. Two down, one to go in our summer vacation series. Next Monday, in this space, you will find an interview with a well-known cable news anchor. Cable news anchor whose name has been mentioned many, many, many times on this podcast. Enjoy it. I hope. Uh, if you hear this, I'm running around the UK having the time of my life, I hope. And we'll see you back Monday for more lukewarm takes about the media. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.
Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.